Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. It's no secret, Telstra Ventures has become the corporate venture capital gold standard in Australia. This is largely thanks to our guests today, Matt Kirker and Mark Sherman, the founders and managing directors. We'll explore the tactics to their approach, like how to build a revenue-bearing relationship early and make investments that fulfil the end customer need. As you'll hear, it's under their stewardship that Telstra Ventures doubled their fund in partnership with Harbourvest and have had some 10x plus results over the past decade. Of course... We'll share tips on assessing if and how you should even approach corporate venturing and how to drive differentiated value in the rapidly growing VC market. So let's get into it. Let's start by quick intro, each of you, and, and talking about your careers before Telstra Ventures and what it was, what experiences you felt were most critical to make you the great corporate venturers that you are today. Mark, why don't we start with you? Great. So, you know, before uh, Telstra Ventures, basically, I was passionate about quality software products and software leaders for a very long time. When I got out of grad school, I took a company called Intuit Public as the first project that I worked on as as a buck private banker. And, uh, you know, met the team there, saw how they were trying to change the world. and, And I was hooked. And it was amazing because Intuit went public at about a half a billion dollar market cap. And I was just looking the other day, they're at $70 billion in terms of market cap. And so it just shows how, you know, really thoughtful companies with great products and great leaders can not only transform consumer and small business finance, as it is in their case, but then also transform the world. After that, I was a GP at Battery Ventures, where... I led the investment in Coupa, which uh, is a small SaaS-based procurement leader when I first invested in them. And we did the investment at about $20 million post. And they're at roughly 6 or $7 billion in market cap now. My whole career has really been dedicated to tech. And I started originally as uh, an engineer, sort of specializing in electrical engineering and computer science. Worked at Fujitsu for a number of years, uh, started sort of in the research labs there and, and sort of worked more and more in project management. So I've built things before that have been sold before. I've spent lots of time, you know, with customers on site. So it's an amazing training ground of, you know, understanding the whole, you know, how do you build innovation and, and how do you sort of, you know, get it into a customer and make it work and keep it going. Then went to business school, uh, majored in finance, uh, and then started at Macquarie Bank in the late 90s, just as the dot-com craziness started. And it was just an amazingly unique opportunity in time. Uh, so, you know, we, we invested in probably about 25 companies. But, you know, one of the investments that we worked on uh, was Seek, which was like literally, uh, you know, a dozen people, tiny little business, you know, and that's a six, seven billion dollar market cap company now. So it was just amazing, you know, to see how that business has grown, you know, from a very, very early phase uh, to be a, a big publicly listed company. I then worked at Deutsche Bank, fantastic opportunity. I mean, they had a big portfolio, about two and a half billion uh, funds under management, and they had everything from airports to, you know, early stage uh, startup companies in the Australian business. Uh, and we were part of a much larger global portfolio. So it was just an amazing opportunity, you know, to see 
you know, how companies are being built, um, you know, in all stages of the evolution, including buyouts. And it was just an incredible privilege to work with some of the entrepreneurs that we had there. We, you know, had some some really wonderful companies that we worked with. I then uh, ended up doing a buyout from a part of that business uh, before I joined Telstra. And, you know, what has been amazing uh, at Telstra is, you know, we've really started from a clean sheet of paper and we've really, um, you know, worked very hard, I think, over the last almost eight years to put together a venture business. And I think, you know, all of my experience and all of Mark's experience uh, and the experience of the rest of the team, I think, have been really pivotal in you know, really building the business that we have so far. It's like the Beatles. Eight years, great team, consistently seeing that build and build and build. What, what are the skills that you've looked for over that time as you've built out the team? I mean, you, you operate as, as one unit, you, you assess you know, thousands of investments to make the few that you make. What skills have been really important for you to bring on to help augment what you guys ha- have started to really get to the quality that you've got to? You know, there's basically three skill sets that we're looking for. One is being an investor. Two is driving revenue-bearing relationships. And then three is around data science because data science is becoming such an important part of everything. And on the investing side, what we're looking for is a good mixture between commercial experience, so product people, go-to-market people, sales people, BD people, but just in the end have great commercial judgment. And then mixing them with investors folks who have sourced investments, done due diligence, been board members. And it's the mixture of that commercial experience with investing experience that really lead to the quality of the investing team that we've built. You know, the second bit is all around uh, revenue bearing relationships. And, you know, we have five members of that team that basically drive how we differentiate ourselves, which is basically investing in you know, high quality IT companies like a DocuSign or a Box or a CrowdStrike, and then helping them uh, sell either to or through Telstra and their customers, and then building out those revenue bearing relationships between, say, CrowdStrike on one hand, and then Telstra and maybe some of the big banks on the other. And then last but not least, data science is so important to us. You know, we've hired two guys, one who uh, comes from LinkedIn and has done a, a variety of marketing analytics, and another who comes from Uber and basically has done a number of you know, business analytics uh, for Uber. And data is just sort of flowing and pulsating how we make these decisions to give us more leverage, but then give us more insight in terms of how we can make great investments. Venture capital, I think, is very much like an apprenticeship, Right. I mean, it looks very easy, you know, from the outside, but there's a lot of nuance uh, and a lot of subtlety and a lot of complexity that takes years to develop. And and one of the things, you know, that that I've certainly observed is that, you know, there isn't a course that you can do and then someone can immediately be an amazing venture capitalist. I think it's, you know, literally decades of experience and to really see a company go from a concept, a startup, you know, a scale up, and then ultimately, you know, a big company that's acquired or, or goes public. There's a million problems along the way. Um, and you really need to have been through a bunch of these companies to really sort of see all of the problems along the way. And really, it's sort of one of those industry, one of those sort of, you know, professions that you really need to learn by doing. And I'm still learning every single day. You know, I mean, I've been doing this for more than 20 years. And, you know, there's everyday new problems and new things 
that we have to deal with that we haven't seen before. And I think one of the great opportunities, you know, for some of the younger people in our team is they, they are getting to work with really, really great entrepreneurs and getting to see a lot of these problems and skills that you then develop on the back of that. I know you guys go through a really rigorous process, your assessment process, the way you scan and, and ultimately make your investments. At the end of the day, how much of that is that the details, the data, the process you go through, and how much of it is that sensitivity, that feel, that experience that you've developed over the years, do you think, that helping you make the calls? I think it's basically a good mixture of both art and science. And, you know, the science is to having a rigorous process where you talk to customers, you talk to competitors, you talk to others in the ecosystem, you talk to previous employers, previous board members of the management team, and you grill through, you know, the financials in some level of detail. And, and that's sort of the science part of it. And, you know, you can come up with a lot of rules and principles within which you can invest in, which are really driving towards four or five things. Is it a great product? Is it a really high quality team? Are there trends that are making it relevant now? And, you know, will ultimately we drive, you know, a very strong financial return? The art side is, you know, Matthew and I together have probably done thousands of due diligence calls. And so in our brains, we have maps of how does this sound relative to other companies that we've done in general or in this specific space or this space, you know, relative to other competitors? And I think that that's a little bit of the art because in general, most of the diligence that we do comes back with a lot of conflicting details. And we need to then come up with some sense of how to weight some calls versus how to weight others and what are the interests and incentives of those that are you know, giving us the information so that we can come up with the most thoughtful and complete uh, investment judgment. Might push in a little bit to your, and I know obviously um, a lot of what you do is ha, has um, sensitivity around it you know, from a commercial perspective, but where you can, reflecting on some of your, what you say is your greatest wins, your biggest successes and pride points. I would say the most recent one is, is CrowdStrike, which we just took public back in June. And this was a company that our partner, Marcus Bartram, basically led some years back. And Marcus started focusing on security in, in uh, 2012, basically with the thesis that the whole um, security stack was changing because of the advent of cloud, because of the advent of mobile phones and mobile access, and then a lot of the different uh, security protocols that were evolving uh, at the time. And basically started to research all the major sectors. And in Endpoint, which is where CrowdStrike operates, basically met with all the companies in that space. I think there were about a half a dozen or maybe even a dozen at the time that he was following. And for a variety of reasons, suggested that the approach that CrowdStrike had was the right one. To be open, we probably paid a bigger price uh, than we would have liked to uh, when we initially invested in CrowdStrike. But we thought that the product was the best in the industry. We thought the team was the best in the industry. And we thought that ultimately the existing products of Symantec and McAfee, you know, had a lot of vulnerabilities that essentially opened them up to be exploited uh, by the guys at CrowdStrike. And, you know, we're happy to report that the company has gone public and, and now has a 18 or $19 billion market cap, which is, you know, maybe 15 times, you know, our money in terms of what we've invested in. And, you know, has ended up being a very good outcome for us. At the same time, in terms of delivering on the revenue bearing relationships, 
Telstra is a customer of CrowdStrike and a number of other you know, large ASX 100 companies, let me just leave it at that, mm. have become customers of CrowdStrike. And so ultimately, not only have we driven a great return, but we you know, helped to drive uh, great technology to Australia, particularly at the top end of the marketplace. Successful is always a very, um, a, a deal is never done till the deal is done, right? So um, we've had like a, a lot of really great you know, companies in the portfolio. I mean, we've exited about 15 companies so far, which is which has been fantastic. There's a lot of really interesting businesses which are still unrealized uh, in the portfolio today. So, you know, one of the things that I think we are very proud of is that we've had quite a few companies go public. CrowdStrike was a recent one. Whisper went public uh, on the Australian Stock Exchange quite recently as well. We've also had IPOs for Snap, DocuSign, uh, and box, you know, so there have been some really wonderful success stories in the public markets uh, in the portfolio. Uh, we've also had a bunch of acquisitions, so there, there's been lots of really impressive, you know, value created, um, you know, for the entrepreneurs and for the shareholders, you know, through through some of the M&A opportunities in the portfolio as well. But as I said before, I mean, we, we've made um, companies with about 15 or 16 exits. We've got 62 investments that we've made so far. And a lot of the unrealized uh, companies are also trending really well. And and there's a lot of exciting growth uh, and opportunity there. I love the blended outcome. Often, you know, there's this challenge in the VC environment where you've got to find that unicorn to make your fund and and it drives a certain behavior from the VC, which might not be the best for those that aren't going to make the the grade. It doesn't seem the case for you guys. It's a blended play. You're getting multiple exits, multiple outcomes to make the fund, so to speak. You're good money. You're you're great investors, great supporters of your, your companies. I think that's really, really a differentiator, really exciting. Yeah, and John, I think it's important to note that the way we look at it is what we're doing is driving two agendas and they're very complementary. If we want to have commercial success in the revenue bearing relationship side in terms of introducing Telstra and its customers to the best technology companies in the world, that is very similar to what the best investors want in the world, which is great products and great leaders and great market trends that are leading to, you know, great outcomes. And so, you know, sometimes you'll get little ripples in terms of things that are a little bit different at time. But overall, we're investing in sort of three, five, seven, nine-year timescales. And so we're just looking for quality all around that will lead to a great commercial outcome and will also lead to a great uh, investing outcome. On the flip side, when we, if we talk about innovation, there's the, the challenge of knowing when to not proceed, when to fail fast, however you want to frame it. Any you can share, any decisions that you, you couldn't take forward that you wish you could or, or, or even more so that you had to stop or pull out of that was really hard, that felt really hard to do, but it was the right thing to do? It's definitely very, very top of mind for us every day. And we are very privileged in that we get to see lots and lots of really interesting companies, but we can actually really only invest in very, very few, you know, partially because we're very sort of, you know, limited on the amount of capital that we have. Uh, but also we need to find the companies that have the best fit, you know, for us and for our investment criteria and for our, you know, synergy bearing relationships. So, I mean, we, we literally see well over a thousand companies a year and we usually invest in about 10 or 12. So 99% of the companies that we actually get to meet, we can't invest in. So unfortunately, most of our job is actually saying no to people. And there is sort of varying stages, you know, in that. I mean, there was a company we looked at 
recently, we loved it. We worked with them for some time. We really were very, very excited by the team. We really liked the market. We really liked what they were doing and their approach. But after we went through the due diligence and we, you know, conducted sort of, you know, 30 or so calls with industry and experts, we just didn't believe the unit economics of that business mm. and the scalability. And, you know, it was a very hard decision to walk away from that company uh, because they had had such great traction and it was a really good team. But at the end of the day, we just didn't believe that, that business would really scale. So, you know, there are many, many examples like that. That's kind of at the pre-investment level. And sometimes portfolio companies don't work out. And there's always this dilemma of, you know, do you sort of continue to invest in a company, you know, the old throwing good money yeah. after bad problem. And it is really important for us to be very disciplined about where we want to fund the follow-on capacity that we have in our portfolio. Again, it's a fixed amount of capital. Mm. So we do need to be very rigorous uh, and analytical in deciding where we follow on invest. And typically, you know, we sort of have categories of companies we definitely want to invest a lot more. And then there are other companies where we really want to try and, you know, minimize the amount of additional investment that we put in. And, and often that means trying to get to a liquidity event and, and really, you know, getting uh, an exit for that investment. So not, lots of difficult, challenging situations, but that's part of life. I just wanted to follow on from something, Mark, you mentioned earlier, this, the importance of revenue bearing or, or even the synergy of the, the, the business to generating revenue for the, for the company and for your customers. I see that as a real differentiator, the way you've been able to hold fast to that and really implement that. I felt it as an executive at Telstra and the importance of my commitment to these investments as well and to driving synergy. Can you talk a bit more about it, why that's so important and, and how you've managed to stay true to that? Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, Telstra is a large strategic investor in us and a great partner and a great relationship uh, group. And we still have tons of relationships there. And I think what we want to do is make them happy both on the commercial side and then also make them happy on the investing side. And as such, we found a way to introduce them to some of the hottest companies in the world as a way for Telstra to really push its innovation agenda. And that really scratches a lot of itches you know, within Telstra. And at the same time, it really benefits a lot of the companies that we work with. And in some respects, you know, we're sort of in the middle and we're, we've got access to the hottest companies on the one side, and then we've got access to some of the largest, most interesting IT buyers on the other. And then we just sit in the middle and we listen and we try to do great homework. So both sides really respect the work that we have. And thus far, we've generated a quarter of a billion US dollars for our portfolios. That's roughly 315 Australian for our portfolio. 29 of the 60 plus investments have generated revenue for Telstra. We've got nine of the top 10 ASX companies, our Telstra uh, Ventures portfolio uh, company buyers. Um, and I want to say, Matthew, what's the other statistic? I want to say 26 of the top 26 out of 50. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've still got 24 to go out of the top 50 that we got to get working on. But, uh, you know, there's it's just a matter of time. I mean, you know, in the end, you know, we don't have relationships with everyone. All of our portfolio doesn't scratch all the itches of all of Telstra's customers, but we'll get them. I mean, I think we'll get a significant majority of those accounts over time. And, and just to give you another metric, one of the things that we're also very proud of is that we've been able to deploy our portfolio company solutions in over 1,250 enterprise customers. Wow. So, you know, there is quite a lot of reach across the portfolio. And look, it doesn't always work. I mean, some companies have definitely been much more successful than others. But, you know, when it works, it can be very powerful. And to your earlier point, it is something that we're very excited about. And it's definitely a differentiator. 
A little bit more, you, you talked also about thesis. Maybe, Matt, this is one for you, the importance of the thesis. And I know you have really strong vertical theses and, and where you investment, you mentioned CrowdStrike and the, and the security thesis that Marcus built from. A couple of questions on this one. How important do you think a central growth or innovation thesis is for a corporate from which the venturing theses emerge? Is, is that connective tissue really important back to the core strategy? And then secondly, how have your theses evolved over time? Have they been fairly static over the eight years or obviously you brought in new domains, but do you tend to find your theses evolve with your investments and with the market? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, that's actually a very big question. It is. So let me sort of address different parts of that. So one thing to start off with, our investment strategy has been very, very stable the entire time that we've been operating. And, and that's very, very important because if you keep sort of saying, well, we're going to do, you know, startup pre-revenue companies today and then next year we're going to do sort of unicorn hunting, it's really inconsistent and really venture capital is a business that sort of, you know, works in years and decades. So the, the consistency of the investment strategy is very critical and, and we, we've worked very hard to get the strategy right early and to really maintain that. Mm. Having said that, we do cover different thematic areas and we've got 10 investment professionals in our team and we, we do cover a number of different areas, cybersecurity, um, we've talked about CrowdStrike. I mean, we've probably made about sort of 12, 13 investments uh, in that particular area. But there are a whole lot of other thematic areas that we cover in detail as well. And, and typically, we are a very proactive investor. So what I mean by that is there's sort of proactive deal flow where you go out and try and find a company. And then there's reactive deal flow where companies come to us and say, would you like to invest in our company? And, and we tend to be very thematic. We tend to look at everything that's been funded in a particular thematic area. We then pick the companies that we believe are most interesting, both strategically and from an investment point of view. We'll then approach the companies and then try and build a relationship with those entrepreneurs and show them why they should take money from us and how we can help them and how we can really use our strategy through Telstra to help them you know, gain market traction. So really, that's our preferred way um, of operating and that's pretty interesting. The other sort of element that you asked about is, you know, the connective tissue and the, the corporate. Absolutely. So we are very focused at finding investment areas that are relevant to Telstra and Telstra's customers. And cybersecurity, again, using that same example, is, is incredibly topical. I mean, everybody cares about data security. I mean, there have been massive issues and massive value destruction through cyber breaches. So, you know, that is an area that's very important. And all of the areas that we tend to focus on should be relevant in some way, shape or form to our ultimate client base through the Telstra channel. So that does change from time to time. You know, I mean, technology evolves very quickly and, you know, there are always new things coming. So we need to make a view on when we introduce a new area and when we discontinue a particular area. So that's sort of something that we do from year to year. But then also... One of the things that's very important from the Telstra side is, you know, making sure, to Mark's earlier point, that we really listen to what the customers really want, right? Because it's very easy to find a shiny toy and say, wow, look at this, you know, why don't you buy this? Um, yeah. If there isn't any sort of interest and if there's not really sort of a, a user need that they're willing to pay for, you can have the best technology in the world, but you're never going to sell it. So we are very focused on finding things that are incredibly relevant for those end customers as well. Next question I've got is around governance and how you've been able to, over these eight years, maintain strong governance back into your investor base, into Telstra, and keep that alignment. Governance in innovation is often a 
incredibly tricky area of getting the right balance of freedom to move, but connective tissue back to the core, often a, a cause of the failing of innovation hubs and other areas of innovation. You've succeeded. What are, yeah, what are the secrets of success in how you've applied the right governance to the venturing team? We start with the premise of where we think the world is going to be five years from now and then work back from there. And I think some of the reason why other corporate innovation groups or strategies have challenges is they look kind of inside out Mm -hmm. as opposed to outside in. And so I think one of the things that we give the Telstra guys a lot of credit is they've given us a lot of leeway to take where we think the best entrepreneurs are and the best products are and then bring them back into Telstra. Telstra may or may not take them at the time, but I think they benefit from seeing where we think the best companies are. And I think that that's sort of number one, two, and three in terms of what's important in trying to make innovation work in turn in a corporate context or just just in general. And have you done that through a board, a venture board? Has it been that balance of executive input and financial input and all that kind of stuff? There are many levels of governance and the fund that we're managing now is is over 750 million Australian dollars. So it's an incredible responsibility. So we do take that very, very seriously. We do have uh, an investment committee at Telstra. We had a board that made all investment decisions, all follow-on investment decisions, and all shareholder matters and divestments. So you have a very formal process where we do the due diligence, we make a recommendation, and that then has to be approved by that governing body. We have a lot of financial discipline. I mean, everything that we do is audited by one of the big accounting firms. There's a lot of governance and risk management that is applied through. Um, so we're a registered mm-hmm. investment advisor under the Security Commission in the United States. So there's a lot of governance and protections that sort of work around there. And then within our own, uh, I guess, interactions with our portfolio companies, you know, we're often directors of those companies. We often get very involved in appointing senior executives in that business, setting the strategy, setting the risk frameworks um, on the risk committee, on on some of our portfolio companies, audit committees. I mean, we do get very hands-on in a lot of those risk mitigation strategies. And it's an important element. And there's always a conflict, right? Because entrepreneurs are very creative and you want them to sort of run wild and and go and do their thing. But then on the other side, you know, there's a fiduciary responsibility and you do need to comply with laws and making sure that, you know, everything is done properly and cash flow is managed carefully and you don't run out of money. So there's sort of this balance between those two uh, objectives. Love to hear a bit about Harbourvest. The last 18 months, some changes, you've expanded and grown, key partnership there. What led to that decision and what have been the benefits? It was a very, very exciting transaction for us. The deal was announced uh, on the 29th of June, 2018. And um, it's something that I guess Mark and I had sort of had aspirations for for quite some time. And and look, the the thing that is exciting about it is we ultimately have sort of gone from a client base of one, which was Telstra, Mm -hmm. to now a client base of two. So we have some institutional money as a co-investment. And I think long-term, our strategy is to diversify our capital sources further by bringing in more institutional investors into our funds. So this is definitely the beginning of a journey that we've been uh, hoping to embark for some time. The thing that's been great about Harbourvest is that they really have been fantastic partners along the journey of transitioning from being a fully owned and operated Telstra subsidiary to being a proper funds management company. 
And Harborvest have done many transactions like that before. And I think having their experience and their insights and their you know reputation, I think, was very, very important to Telstra in making its decision to go down this way. We're very, very excited about the transaction. It's given us you know a lot more capital. Uh, it's given us a lot more flexibility and autonomy. Uh, we can make decisions much more effectively now. And then natural follow-on from that, looking at the impact of venture capital as you take on Morningstone money and, and expand your reach, SoftBank is the elephant in the room. They're, they've changed the face of, of investment globally with incredible scale. Love your reflections on their approach, the importance to society of what they're doing. Just how do you think about SoftBank? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to think about it is technology is touching pretty much everything we do. And what they have pioneered is the high end of the market, which is this multi-billion dollar fund platform complemented by making large 500 million slash billion dollar commitments. And I think it just speaks to the magnitude of the opportunity. And, you know, one way of thinking about it is that if you take the market value of all the unicorns in the world, it's 2% of the S&P 500 market cap. And I don't know how much you think that the unicorns are going to eat into the market cap of the S&P 500. I think pretty much everybody would be agree that it's bigger than 2%. But is it 4%, 8%, 16 32 64 You tell me. And I think what's going to happen, I, I kind of think it's going to be at the higher end of that, but it's going to be very interesting. And, and as such, I just think it speaks to the overall shift between public equity capital to private equity capital and private equity capital geared towards technology in the venture space. So I think both Matthew and I are pretty optimistic about the outlook for the overall sector for Telstra Ventures and just you know speaks to just the magnitude of the opportunity that I think we can all enjoy. So a lot of our listeners will be wrestling with how they get into this space. Should they venture? How would they go about it? How does it work at the scale they're at? So let's take an example. Say we're a $2 billion, $3 billion market cap company in the retail industry. We're building an innovation portfolio to determine and start to search and explore new forms of revenue, new directions, new technologies. Would you recommend a company of that size to get into corporate venturing? And if so, how might you get started and structure it and and think about how how they would get going? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And one of the events that we often uh, participate in is a a global corporate venture conference, uh, which is uh, usually in the US and then there's another one in London. And it's quite interesting to see how many corporate venture groups there are and how incredibly varied they are. I mean, very big groups, very small groups. Uh, and there are literally thousands of corporate venture units uh, in the world. The first sort of philosophical question, I think, would be, what is the purpose of establishing the group? Is it focused on financial returns only or is it focused on synergy or is it a combination of both? And there are a number of corporate venture groups that are purely financially focused with no synergy at all. On the other extreme, there are companies that are incredibly synergistically focused to the point where they almost don't care about financial returns. And the dilemma with both of those ends of the spectrum is that corporate venture for a multi-billion dollar market cap company is always going to be very small. Like it's not really going to move the needle significantly with respect to EBITDA. So you've got to look at, well, what are the sort of, you know, other 
benefits. Like, is there new innovation? Are there new products we can take to our customers? Is there other sort of, you know, new revenue streams that we can generate? So all of those kind of questions have to be determined in order to figure out whether it's worth it or not. If it's purely financial, you know, you can say, well, look, we're not a financial institution, so why would we do a pure financial investment? So there's definitely a dilemma there. So I think my view would be you need obviously strong financial performance because if you've got a corporate venture unit that's losing money every year, there's not a sustainable business there, right? So financial returns clearly matter. But then also the synergy, I think, clearly matters as well. And I think what's important is to blend a team which know how to do venture capital, so people who are experienced investors, but then marrying them with people who really understand the corporate that they're part of and and really figuring out what the synergy is, what are the investment themes, and how do we actually create some relevance for the corporation through the investments that we're making. And the only way that you can really do that is by having experienced teams of the investment side and also experienced team within the corporate and really putting those together to build something that's going to work. But it's a very interesting question. Corporate venture has grown dramatically over the last 10 years, and it's still continuing to grow. And I think it's definitely getting more and more Um, sophisticated and much better than what it was. And it's a very, very exciting growth industry. John, I think the only thing I would add, I think Matthew said it well, the two things that I would add is capital is a commodity. And so it doesn't really matter if you're putting capital to this. The things that matter are what your value add is because it's a very competitive market. Hmm. And so packaging product capabilities, channel capabilities, talent capabilities, so that you attract the best entrepreneurs is sort of really important. And then Matthew said it, but I'll say it again, which is putting people that really understand the venture discipline well and putting all the right compensation incentives together to attract the best people. It is very easy to have a very mediocre corporate venture practice. It's very hard to have a top-tier, global-leading type of business. And those are the two things, people and value-add are the key things you need to invest in. How will we get high-quality deal flow and how will we earn the right to that and how will we attract and retain the best talent? What a, what a great question to stare into before you <laughs> jump into, the, into this pond. Oodles a question about process and structure and you know all those types of things, You know which are important, don't get me wrong, but I think that that's sort of the first, second, third grade stuff, you really need to focus on the the higher level things in order to make it really work. Just on that, I mean, the easy thing is to give money to people, right? The hard thing is actually to get it back and to make a positive return and to add some value along the way, right? So (laughs) you see a lot of people getting very excited when they've deployed money into an investment, but that's really the beginning of the journey. And it's hard, you know, I mean, it's very, very difficult to pick winners. It's very difficult to turn that into a successful outcome. So, um, like I said before, it looks very easy from the outside, but there's a lot of subtlety and nuance, you know, that that sort of goes on hand in hand with that. I think that's the perfect place to wrap up. I'm not sure that it does look easy, Matt. Certainly, um, I I know the amount of work you guys have put in and I, when I talk to other clients, I'm always like, if you're not going to do it well, really think about whether you do it at all because it it ain't easy. But you guys have done an amazing job, eight years, huge ongoing successes you've you've obviously created incredible trust in those who are funding you and that that is you know the biggest sign of your success so thank you so much guys thanks thank you that's it for this episode of the corporate innovator as always thanks for listening and if you're loving the episodes 
Be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.